Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well we're, uh, I don't know how many more of these we're going to do in this series of uh, going full-time in property. A couple more weeks yet? Who knows? But um, today I'm very pleased to uh, invite back to the show Damien Fogg. Many of you will remember Damien if you've uh, listened to the podcast for a while. He's joined me on more than one occasion and of course we know each other pretty well. I really miss him and it's good to have him back. We're still buddies, so uh, it's always good to catch up and, and have a bit of a share. So we did that, obviously, via video link. Uh, a lot of fun. And I think you're going to enjoy what he's going to say about his particular journey about going full-time in property right now. Hi, Damien. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Seen a lot of you lately, um, obviously. Hard to get away from, aren't I? <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's great to see you again, actually, because obviously we spent a lot of time together over the last few years or so. Um not we so did. much in, in very recent times, which I'm sure we'll find out about what you've been doing. But um, Have you missed me? Oh, of course, yeah. Of course I've missed you. Excellent. Good answer. Yeah, I remember, for example, writing, writing with crayons on uh, some random um, table mat in Canada, was it in Toronto or something? Toronto, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Basically mapping out a business with crayons. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe that's why it didn't work out quite when we have it. <laughs> Um, but that was a lot of fun. We've done other good fun times. But anyway, so good to catch up with you, even though it's not in person. Um, those those listening and don't know what on earth you know we're talking about and who you are, Damien Fogg. Thanks a lot for joining us today on the Property Voice podcast. Um, this you've been on it before, so if you're a regular listener, of course you've probably heard Damien once or twice over the years um, come and talk and offer his wisdom. But um, I think today we're talking about going full-time in property as part of this series that we're in the middle of right now. And I've got a sneaky feeling you might have something to say about that. I mean, I've done it, so I guess I'm at least qualified to be here. Exactly, and that's why I've invited you. So what I normally do at this point is I'm going to show up a bit and just say, um, why don't you just take us back to some time before full-time in property or before property. You don't have to go to birth. But um, <laughs> unless you really want to, but just what, what was you? Anybody what, wants that. What was life like for you before getting into property, and then what what caused you to get into it? What were your motives, and what did you do? Okay, so I got into property quite early when I was a grown up, but initially, I my first degree was in business and finance, and so I spent quite a lot of time trading. And initially, it was sort of day trading stuff, but more in the equities and currency side of things. And did quite well at that, mostly through luck, if I'm being honest. Um, And because of the volatility involved with these sorts of things, it sort of did lead me towards, well, I'd like a more stable asset base. As I say, my degree was in finance, so I kind of understood the investing options out there. And I was a qualified financial advisor as well. So I knew all of my different asset options. And I was quite heavily leveraged and quite overweight in one specific type. And so I knew property was something I wanted to get into for all of the long-term stable benefits of it. 
And so that was something I started to drift across towards. And initially, yeah, did all of the mistakes that you can possibly make. Watched Sarah Beanie programs. I was like, I could definitely do that and become full-time in property. Um, and then bought off-plan new builds in the worst possible locations and all of the great stuff. So yeah, managed to make a complete pig's ear of it. But kind of liked it, kind of got into it. And because the type of personality and person I am, I wanted to make sure if I was going to do it, I was going to be good at it. And so then went and became chartered as a building surveyor. And that led into a whole sort of development side of my career. And then did that for a bunch of different companies, agencies, the government for quite a lot. Um, and got a lot of experience doing that. The whole time, still doing some trading, still doing equities, but focusing more and more on property. And then after however many years, about 11 years, maybe 12 years, something like that, of when I first started, I was able to retire effectively at 32 and live off the money I'd made from my investments, the majority of which were property at that point. So, and then from there, I don't know how far I'm supposed to keep on going at this point. Should I shut up now? Or? Yes, let's pause for breath. And let's, um, okay. yeah, so what? that's great. Thanks. Um, obviously, I know a lot of that. The, the, it, what's yeah, try to look less bored when I'm talking, Richard. <laughs> it's my natural face. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got a natural bored-looking face. That's not very good, is it, for video? Uh, you should work on that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, okay, the, what, what really struck me was you talked about, A, your personality, and, and then, B, the fact that you got qualified that seems to be consistent. You did your degree. You've got the IFA qualification you talk about. I've written down chartered BS for some reason, but I think that means uh, building, <laughs> building surveyor. So um, it, it, you are, you make a point about you wanted to do, you know, really know what you're doing and, and also getting academically uh, or professionally qualified um, seems to be a big deal. So how do you know, what made you decide to do that and what difference did it make actually I know you said that you stepped into property and made some mistakes, but you've been a bit humble, I think, um, certainly beyond the first few investments from what I know of you. Yeah. Yeah, I think, as I say, the first, my first degree was in finance and that led me towards investing. So I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to know more. So the easiest way to do it is who are the professionals in this industry that tell people what to do? Well, I'll go and learn what they know. And so the same with property. I started to get into property. I'd been doing it for probably four or five years at that point. Nothing spectacular, buying sort of, as I say, off-plan stuff. Then started to go to more, more towards the Victorian two up, two down terraces. So I was starting to learn a little bit. And I decided to go into full-time, not full-time property. Well, I guess so. I decided property was going to be my thing. And so I started working for a letting agency, uh, an estate agency. And all of the transactions I was involved in it was always, you know, vendors, people buying it, solicitors, blah, blah, blah. And then at some point, the surveyor would come along and everyone would be like, ooh, the surveyor said this. So that must be that. And obviously, it was residential valuation surveying at the time. But it was like, whatever they say is just law. And if there was a big problem with the property that was being sold, it was like, oh, this one's going to fall down. We need a surveyor to do a report. And so it was kind of like there was this big like, ethos, myth around, well, surveyors just know everything to do with property. So I'm like, well, I want to be one of them then. <laughs> so, and obviously my timing was immaculate. So I went and did my master's degree, finished my master's degree just as the property market collapsed. And so no one was taking anybody on. So I'm like, ah, crap. So, and they changed all the rules around uh, valuation surveyors. I'd done my training to become a building surveyor. 
on the basis of they're the ones that know how buildings are built. And you can also do valuation at the same time. I wanted to become a valuation surveyor because I wanted to be able to walk around properties and be like, this is how much this one is, I'll offer less. So I had a whole five-year plan set up, right. completely went to pop when they said, nah, unless you've done specifically training for residential valuation, you can't do that. So I'm like, ah, box. So ended up doing more of the building survey inside of stuff, still included residential, but it meant I couldn't go the route I wanted to. And so, yeah, at that point, I ended up working for the Ministry of Defence, of all random people, because they're one of the biggest landholders and building owners in the country. So I worked for, it was Defence Estates at the time, and then turned into Defence Infrastructure Organisation. But because it's the government, they were still employing, which was novel. I think I was the only person in my graduating year to get a job at the end of it. So that was helpful. Um, and they give you an awful lot of responsibility. So at one point, they just gave me the German estate to manage. Well, I don't know what I'm doing yet. But they're like, yeah, just look after all these residential properties for us. Like, all right. So it was very much thrown in at the deep end. But there's an awful lot of support there for you. So it was a great place to learn. Um, and so, yeah, that I think that mentality of who are the people or who are the group of people that know the most about this particular industry now who teaches them what do they learn to be able to do that i'll go and do that then because i figure i'm then in the same position of if i ever go to a survey and a building surveyor's there wandering around if he says oh well, this crack means that i'm like no it doesn't it means this because of that and i've been outside and looked at this and you've forgotten to look at this so i can argue with them which is often something i like to do and the same with financial advisors. If they're like, oh, well, you should split your assets across this and this. I'm like, no, I shouldn't because of blah. And if I can use their own information against them, it makes me laugh, if nothing else. Yeah. And presumably it provides opportunities as well. That was the biggest thing that accelerated my career, as it were, in property for myself. It was being able to buy stuff that was undervalued, buy stuff that needed work doing to it, buy stuff that other people didn't want to touch yeah. because surveyors would go in and highlight problems and that would put the vast majority of people off. And so, yeah, I picked up some really weird and wonderful stuff for a while, but it kind of worked in my favour and it allowed me to grow my portfolio quite quickly. So give us a relatively... Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, give us an example of a weird and wonderful... So I got one place um, in Cambridge and it was basically unmortgageable because there was no internal bathroom. Um, and they had an outhouse but it wasn't connected to the prop. Well, it was connected to the property in a weird sort of way. Um, and they sort of said, look, there's no bathroom, um, the borderline, not really a kitchen. And so it was unmortgageable. And so because of general house prices in Cambridge, it was quite expensive. I think it was about 300-ish K, something like that. Um, I managed to effectively do a purchase and agreed delay completion on it. Um, kicked a giant hole in the wall outside to the bathroom. It was like, there you go, it's got a bathroom now. And it's connected to the house, so it's internal. And the mortgage companies were like, yeah, this place is still a dump, but it's mortgageable now. So, yeah, we'll lend you money on it. And the valuation, with it being mortgageable, was like 360 or something. And so for literally a sledgehammer in an afternoon, knocking the hole in something, it was like, well, I've now I've been able to identify something that had not structural, as in physically, but a structural issue with that property and a financial structural issue, solve it in a relatively pain, painless way, and then buy it as a normal person. And I didn't do anything else to the property. I sold it on after that. Oh, right. um, I think sold it for 355 for a quick sale and completion. So it was like about 50 odd grand for knocking a hole in the wall. Not bad. It's better than a slap in the face. 
<laughs> certainly was, certainly was. But apart from, so, um, uh, by the way, just going back to the MOD days, does that mean yeah. you signed the Official Secrets Act? I've signed the Official Secrets Act. I've been developed, vetted, and yeah, the things I know that I can't tell you, I've probably forgotten about anyway. So <laughs> Exactly. So uh, I thought we had a James Bond amongst us for a minute there, but... Uh, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> the interesting what you say about Germany, I mean, um, did you notice any, any sort of differences with the German market, for example? It was, I mean, the German market was a bit weird. So I was based in JHQ Rheindahlen, if anybody is military that's listening to it. Um, and so they had, it was a giant tank base, I think, back in the day. And I can't remember the number. There was about 4,000 uh, residential units on there, all built by the British, but they were built sort of prefab to last 10, 15 years. They all had basements that were turning into swimming pools slowly. But because they were pulling out of Germany, there weren't that many people living on base anyway. And so, like, one of the things I'd do is wander around. People say, oh, I've got this issue with the house. And you'd walk around and be like, yeah, okay, just move. Just move next door because you live on a street of 10 houses. There's only two people living here. So you just give them a whole new house. But there you go. You can keep the keys to both, do what you like. Um, so it was very, it was a weird situation. But I looked after um, Cyprus for a little bit and Gibraltar for a bit. Did a refurbishment project in Gibraltar. Uh, that was an odd one. But it's the sort of thing that I never would have been given access to in any other company, I don't think, and not such a diverse range. And it was a case of, well, if you put your hand up and ask, they'll let you do it. So I worked quite a lot for the US Air Force, the USAF bases, and, yeah, developing um, defensive structures for different things and building air hangars for planes. That's probably not going to come up if you get a graduate job at Savills or something like that. So... It was interesting and nothing else. Not all of it was entirely useful, useful, but oh well, I'm sure it was useful because one of the one of the merits surely was you getting paid. So um, that helps. Yeah, yeah, you're getting paid, and presumably you were learning on the you're learning on the job. Some of it, as you say, useful. Some of it, maybe not so. Getting some uh, diverse experience, getting paid, and and so uh, sort of maybe leading you down the garden path a little bit. What did you do with the money you got paid? Because uh, I don't think you're the sort of person who's um, necessarily went down the casino and blew it all. I think you might have a different approach. I mean, I think at the time I started the like graduate scheme, I was driving a 911. Um, so mostly I spent most of my salary on cars. You're driving a 911 working for, on a graduate scheme. Yeah, it did confuse a lot of people. Um, I was obviously a lot older than most of the other graduates. So I'm like, yeah, I've already done some stuff. But yeah. So that was a bit stupid. Uh, but no, yeah, most of the money I was recycling into buying more property. And I've always tried to split my assets across different asset classes anyway. Um, but it was very much just piling it back into property. And at the time, you could still do the sort of buy, refurbish, refinance and pull out most, if not all of your money. And so the same kind of pot of money, it was about probably 150K. I just kept on recycling that and buying more and more properties. As time went on, you had to leave a little bit more in each time. So you might leave, you know, five, 10, 15 grand in a property and then move on to the next one. So the, the salary was obviously living expenses, but was also part of topping up that pot again. So every time I'd leave money into a property, it would be like, well, yeah, okay, that's 10 grand's worth of savings now just tied up there. I'll top it up with the salary. So that was, I mean, the other good thing about, I suppose, the MOD is they do. I think purposefully move you every three to six months so you don't get too comfortable anywhere, don't set down any routes. And so 
I'd very much been, I'm from a place called the Wirral up in the northwest, near Liverpool and Chester. Um, I'd always very much been, well, I'll, I'll stay here. If I go away for work or something, I'll go do a little bit, but then I'll come back here because the Wirral's brilliant, it's better there everywhere else. Um, and it was the only place I'd really invested at that point. I'd done some of Manchester, some of Chester, but mostly it had been sort of Wirral-based. The MOD moving me around every five minutes kind of did open my eyes up to the rest of the country. And so I could then get a feel for, well, okay, this is what investing is like in Cambridge. I'd never been to Cambridge before. Um, and with the USAF bases are down that way. So I ended up moving down there. So it was it was good from that point of view as well, just getting a bit more exposure to not only the world, Europe, but specifically the UK as well. So I think you've got a very particular approach to certainly that phase when you were doing the the BRR type of model. If you know, yeah. the, walk us through that and some of the you know the financial uh, assumptions or the, some of the way you view financing. That that was interesting. Um, mortgages, for example, uh, to refresh your memory. Uh, you know, <laughs> just just walk us through that. You know, what did you do? How did you approach it? Uh, generally speaking, I guess that was the. the the, a fair old chunk of your earlier years, was it? This were about. Yeah, I'd say a good. I started off doing it wrong and basically got penthouse apartments in Manchester. Quite quickly realised that probably wasn't the best strategy in the world, and so went to two up, two down terraces that were anything from probably I'd buy them for anything from forty thousand up to about a hundred, and I did quite a lot of auction properties as well at the time. But the whole BMV thing was starting to become a thing. I never liked that. I never believed in it anyway. So my thing was always, well, no, just stick to estate agents. They're everywhere and there's loads of properties around. And so I'd always just, it was a numbers game, but I'd go and walk around all the estate agents, find stuff I liked, knew what the money was going to be at the back end because I had tenants in the area. So I could reverse engineer my numbers and say, well, I can't have more than this much money invested in it at the end. So what can I afford to pay for it? And then obviously with the experience of being a building surveyor, I could kind of look at the properties and say, well, this is how much work is needed. And I had, because I grew up there, I had quite a lot of contacts in different trades and stuff like that. So I could quite accurately price up a job on a property. So within about 15 minutes, I'd know exactly what my bottom line number was going to be for that property. I've always been into finance and a bit of a geek from that point of view. So the financing side of it, I kind of knew, well, all right, this is going to be bridging finance. This is what I'm going to end up paying for it. And then at the start, the whole six-month rule wasn't a thing, but then sort of by the end of it, it become one. And so just even being able to plan in for that and say, well, okay, it's going to be six months at this rate. Then I'll refinance up to this rate. These are the deals available. This is the upfront fee, blah, 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 blah. So it was it was very much a cookie cutter it's a hard thing to say when you're a bit drunk. It was a very much a cookie cutter approach to these development things. And it was by a bit of a dump, two up, two down terrace, so Victorian stock majority, that needed some work. As I say, a lot of them were auction ones. Otherwise, they were just properties that had been left in disrepair. Yeah. Do the work to a pretty good standard um, on the basis of I was going to keep them long term anyway, and then refinance it, let them out. And because you'd be waiting probably realistically nine months per property to refinance it once all the work had been done, it gave you long enough for the MOD sort of salary to top up what I was going to end up leaving into the property. And that then meant I could just go again. And I got to the point, because some of the deals were literally like 40 grand for a place at auction, I could have like two or three on the go at once anyway. 
a couple of times I did just do it purely cash if it was either quicker that way or it was so little it was too much of a pain in the arse. 25 grand tends to be the minimum mortgage you can get. So if you're buying something for 40K, I mean, you may as well get a personal loan for 25K. It's easier and quicker. So quite often I'd just buy it myself with cash, do it quicker. The six-month rule still applied, but you could, if you wanted to, you could refinance it at least with purchase price plus invoiced expenses. And sometimes I'd do that if there was no ERCs on it, knowing that in a year's time I could refinance again maybe get a year's worth of growth out of it and then potentially pull even more money out. So I've always been a little bit flexible with how I'll finance things, but I've always known going into them, here are my different exit strategies and what it'll end up costing me. And I think, as you know, I'm very much a cash flow investor, but probably different from you, and maybe it's just a Northern thing, my minimum requirements for cash flow, whether it's flipping or as a buy to let and hold, are quite low compared to yours. So I used to flip things for like a five grand profit because I could do it once I've been up and running for a while, I could do it. It'd take about eight hours worth of work for me because it would just be ringing a couple of estate agents, getting my builder to go around and view it. He'd say, yeah, we're going to do the same as we did on Tudor. You're like, okay, cool. So negotiate it, buy it, run the solicitor stuff, put the money through. He'd do the work. I'd then put it back on the market, sell it. It was very easy, very hands-off. And yeah, so for five grand doesn't necessarily seem worth it for a lot of things. But when you actually work out your hourly rate at eight hours, better than a smack in the face. Yeah, it's not huge still, like, but <laughs> five grand, five grand. Well, five grand for eight hours work. I mean, that's, you know, it's pretty decent. Um, and trying, trying to work out the hourly rate, but um, it's, it's not bad. So, but there's a couple of things you said there. I mean, and there's one or two you didn't. So when you were going on, when you put them on mortgages, what type of mortgage did you take, typically? What for? What you when I was refinancing them to keep for long term? Yeah. A bit of a mix. So I, I quite like longer term sort of five-year fixes, um, which yeah, to an extent backfired a little bit when interest rates collapsed shortly afterwards. Uh, but I've always liked security. Despite all the things that I do, I'm quite risk averse. And so I look at how I can minimize risk at every opportunity. And so by if I can make a property stack up at a relatively high comparatively fixed rate for like five years or 10 years or something like that, if it still cash flows and makes sense to me, I'll take that risk off the table of interest rates moving around and do it that way. I tended to go for maximum would always be 75%, but I'd try and get it as low as possible. Um, and I'd try and... It's just clocked with me what you're trying to get me to say now. So mostly I try and do capital repayment mortgages. <laughs> Sorry, mate, a little bit slow today. I would have got, <laughs> I would have got you there eventually, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, eventually, in about three hours' time. I don't know what mortgages you want me to say. Do you want me to get you the product number or something? <laughs> <laughs> I remember you were telling me your whole model is around repayment mortgages and why. So, you know, I'm really... I just... forget things, whatever. Yes, so <laughs> I would... So generally speaking, I'm my goal, because I'm not overly greedy, my goal is to have an unencumbered asset portfolio because I'd rather have less properties with no debt and therefore no worries in my eyes than a property portfolio four times the size but with 75% LTV because you're just exposed to a lot of other risks there. So when I first started off, I kind of worked out, well, how many properties do I need unencumbered to give me the income I want? And then I tried to race as quick as I could to get to that number. And then once I was there, it's like, okay, cool. Now just pay down the debt on them all. 
So that's obviously been a process that's been in place now for, well, 10, 12 years for some of them. Um, I've got a handful that are unencumbered at this point. There's still some that have got decent amounts of leverage on them. But as a general portfolio, it's under 50% LTV by a decent chunk. So, so yeah, and it's not maximizing, from a purely financial point of view, it's not maximizing the returns I could get. And I've worked with people in property for years now, and I've no doubt that a lot of them will become much more wealthy than me because they're willing to take on more risks. But I don't care. So it tends to be, I might, some of them I've bought, done up, refinanced, and then I'll maybe refinance once again if they've got up by a decent chunk of money. But if I've said refinance to 75% initially and it's dropped down to 50%, I might refinance, but only back up to 60 or something like that. I don't want to go back up to mortgage up to the eyeballs just to be able to add another property on. I'd rather sell something, flip something to generate the cash to buy another property and stick more money down. Yeah. That's my peculiarity, I suppose. The people that say refinance and live off that money, they need shooting. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you haven't been saying that. <laughs> I don't mind you saying it. I totally agree with you. I mean, um, it's it's such a high-risk strategy. and You can make you a hostage, basically, or mortgage prisoner, tax hostage, whatever language you want to use, um, if you if you follow that strategy. Um, it probably it probably work once or twice, um, but around about the third, fourth, fifth iteration, you suddenly become trapped. Um, yeah. And the whole expand as quick as you possibly can. It worked for, I can never remember, those two teachers down in Kent that bought like oh, yeah. 400, what were they called? Yeah. Um, yeah. Those two anyway. Um, and yeah, it worked perfectly for them because they were building the portfolio, basically of off-plan new build stuff in a really good high tenant demand area that had a load of capital appreciation. And then they stopped through luck, I think more than judgment at the right time. So when the mortgage market collapsed, they could still service all of their debt and then they could ride that out and make a profit and end up selling it. I think they sold it to a Saudi or Chinese investor at some point, something like that. The number of people that did exactly the same thing, but maybe kept on going for an extra six months or they didn't buy properties in such a high tenant demand area that ended up going bankrupt. There's probably a lot more of them than there are of the one or two success stories. That's why you know exactly who I'm talking about when I say those two teachers. They're the the exceptions that break the rule. Survivor bias, isn't it? Survivor bias. Yeah. I was going to say the Waltons, but I think, isn't it the Wilsons or something like that? Um, yeah, I think it was the Wilsons, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but yeah, they, I mean, they're all over the news. He's quite outspoken, isn't he? very outspoken so you probably wouldn't appreciate us you know suggesting the strategy would not have been flawed and lucky but there we go <laughs> but yeah but, but who knows uh, so the the other thing though so talk about the just i just want to dwell a little bit on the loan to value side of it because i know you've got your personal view about wanting to have a unencumbered portfolio uh you know, for, for your personal uh, reasons but what about you know just from economic point of view property cycles point of view what about that as far as loan to values are concerned what have you got any views on that yeah i think if you if you follow the 18 year property cycle and you buy into that whole thing then yet there are times to leverage up and sort of leverage down and yeah it's if you're in a particularly strong growth phase then maximizing the amount of exposure you've got to the property sector if it's going to go up and especially if ideally your rental yield is higher than the cost of finance, then you are just benefiting from other people's money. If you can buy something at 6% yield, pay 4% for the money, you make 2% on someone else's money. 
it's ideal. And yeah, as you say, from a pure mathematical point of view, it's the best thing to do. You should get the 100% mortgages if you can swing them. It's, it, it is a personal risk preference and risk profile that I've got. The, back in the day, I probably was more comfortable taking on higher levels of risk. And certainly when I did development, I have done things that are like 100% developed finance. Um, so yeah, I think it's it depends very much on where you are and almost at what point you reach the stage where you've got too much to lose at that point. So do you need to be taking on risk? And sometimes it does just purely come down to greed of people like, oh, no, I just want more because I want a X million pound portfolio. And you're like, all right, why? What difference does that make? I think that harks back to my financial advisor days of, we'll work out what you're doing it all for in the first place and actually stick to that goal. Don't just ace a number for a number's sake because no number's ever big enough. Um, and you know, if you want a million pound equity, once you get there, you'll probably want a million and a half, then two million. There's no end to it. Whereas if you say, well, I want this type of car, this type of property, this type of lifestyle, when you get there, cool, you're done. Yeah. Well, it's interesting itself. Um, <clears throat> what, you know, the other flip side to the leveraging up side of it is if, if there's a downturn in the property market, that 75% loan to value is not 75% loan to value anymore, is it? So it's, um, it's usually a, a little bit more. Yeah, right and there's a reason 75% is generally industry standard for the most they'll go up to. Because we've not, even in the big property crashes, we don't have drops more than 25%, generally speaking. Um, I have a whole random theory on British psychology about that, but whatever. Um, and I think it's it's securing for the finance people rather than you. And it all just comes down to whether or not you can service that debt. If you can, then yeah, take as much debt as you want and grow as fast as you want, provided you've got the ability to finance the debt. So if you're in full-time employment at the moment and having to pay the mortgage on your investment portfolio isn't going to cause you any issues, then yeah, cool, take loads of risk with it. If you rely on the money, so when I sort of retired, however long, six years ago or whatever, I was kind of at the time reliant on my rent roll and my profit from the property. So I'm like, well, I don't really want to take too much of the way I risks with this. So if interest rates double and I end up having to refinance and all of my profit disappears, I have to go get a job again. I didn't like the sound of that. So I wanted at that stage to be reducing my risk, reducing my reliance on money. So, you know, if if interest rates do double now, yeah, it'll have an impact, but it won't cripple me and it won't stop me from being able to live my life the way I want it. Yeah. And some might, some might say you're not employable anymore anyway, Damien. I don't know. But um... most would say that, to be honest, mate. <laughs> But um, but on a serious note, I think you you, you took a bit of time. You, did you say eleven years before you were able to retire, as you call it, at thirty-two? Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those dodgy things, isn't it? When do you count as having started? So I started investing when I was eighteen, but I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. So I probably really started when I finished university, the last year of university. So I was like twenty-one, and then I retired when I was thirty-two. Yeah. So eleven, twelve, thirteen years, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, pick a number. It's but it wasn't. It wasn't one year. Oh God, no. Yeah. So as I'm saying, retiring twelve months, twenty four months, all that sort of stuff. Yes, you can, but you're working in property. I was a property investor, so I was using my money to provide an income, as opposed to using my time, effort, and all that to make it. Because otherwise, you could say, well, as soon as I got employed as a surveyor, well, I'd retired into property. Well, you're full time in property. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit of a 
sure, you could spin it if you really wanted to, but yeah, no. Right, so all the people, yeah, just rent to rent because then you're in you're full time in property. You're an investor. You can retire. Like, no, you can't. You're now working as a rent to rent person. It's a job, and you don't actually have any assets. Yeah, which is a bit of a downer. Yeah. So there's a, I mean, obviously there's ways to protect that, but you know, with options and things like that. But um, and then reinvesting profits to buy assets. But you know, one of the great well, things, well, obviously, whether you're rent to rent or if you're working in software in the city, it's the same thing. You still use your profits inverted commas, whether it's from self-employed or PAYE, to invest in assets. Yeah. And it makes no difference. You've, you've just got a job. Yeah, and that's kind of where I wanted to go a little bit with you as well, because, you know, kind of over about just a decade or so, you you were quietly building up a portfolio. Have you got an order of magnitude you could share with us in terms of either numbers of properties or whatever you feel comfortable sharing um, to get to that point? More than most, not as much as some. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> Probably uh, mid seven figure sort of ballpark, um, which is more than I ever need to live off. I think I worked out the other day. I, I live off about two grand, two and a bit grand a month. I'm mm. fairly cheap, and I've got no kids, no wife. I'm unlovable, so <laughs> I don't need to worry too much about massive expenses. Yeah. Um, and yeah, my biggest expense nowadays is collecting backpacks. Yeah, I do notice you've got quite a fetish. No, a collection uh, of... Um, you like a backpack. <laughs> you do like a backpack, you do, absolutely. But equally, <clears throat> I think, so there's the re- relatively steady way of doing it, which is kind of what you did over about a decade. Uh, yeah. I posted some stats the other day that apparently even the world's uh, top billionaires, I mean, top, top billionaires, the ones that we all know, how, yeah. long, it took, how long it took them to make their first million and the average, you might know already, but the average was um, eight years. So yeah. these are these are billionaires now, <laughs> worth a few billion, and um, they they took eight years to make their first million. So I thought that was really interesting that this high, idea of uh, overnight success, get rich quick, um, wasn't certainly wasn't the model that you followed. Let's say that. No, I mean, and I I went to some of the I think Inside Track they were called back in the day, weren't they? They were like the first scammy property marketers. I hope you haven't interviewed any of them. Um, uh, <laughs> but, <not> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they were the whole get rich quick thing. And I, yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was tempted. I was like, this sounds great because I didn't know any better. But at least I had a bit of financial training from the IFA side of things. And my family are quite nerdy about money and investing. So I'd kind of grown up around it. And so I always knew the whole, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so looking into it in a bit more detail, I'm like, yeah, okay. I can see how on paper this might work, but the reality of it isn't going to work. Um, but as I say, I made pretty big mistakes initially buying off-plan penthouse apartments in South Manchester that from a yield point of view didn't really work. I was paying all the developer profit for it. I remember negotiating because we bought two in one block. Um, I can't remember the numbers. They were like, 280 or something like that and so it was 250 at the time was the stamp duty threshold and so but it was the whole lump sum ones rather than the stage and so I sort of was trying to be sweet and nice to negotiate them down but it was to 250,800 pounds and so for the sake of 801 pounds they couldn't just knock off that to save me the stamp duty but at the time I was like I'm a genius I've just saved myself 30 grand and didn't hold out for behave yourself, give me another 800 quid off so I can save even more on stamp duty. 
it just didn't even occur to me at the time. So, I mean, the opportunities to be ripped off are rife in property. And it's the whole fear of missing out, the greed element of it, of people want things quicker. And yeah, it's possible. There's a handful of people that have done everything, isn't it? You've got billionaires, I'm sure. The average is eight years for your first million. I'm sure there's some people like, yeah, I did it in two months. And there's always those stories that are brought out to make it seem doable for everyone else. But they are the exception rather than the rule. So I think the slow, steady, boring approach is almost guaranteed to work, whereas they're taking the massive risk. It might pan out for you. Probably mm-hmm. won't, though. Well, I think, you know, to be honest, I mean, anyone listening to this who might be in their 20s, you were 21 when you said you started proper. Um, yeah. 18, actually, when you started messing about. Um, you know, and by 30, early 30s, you, you're done. So... What's wrong with that? I reckon, as you say, I reckon you could do it quicker. I could certainly do it quicker now if I knew what I knew now back then. Um, and just not being as distracted, not spending all my money on cars at the time, um, just being a bit more focused and picking the right skills and utilising them properly, you could do it quick. I never, I mean, I am not lazy, fundamentally energy efficient. So I don't like to go faster than I have to. Um and I very quickly realised at 32, I retired. I think I was retired for about four months or so. I'm like, this is rubbish. There is nobody to play with. Everyone's in work. I am bored out of my tiny little mind. And so I started going back to work almost straight away. But at least it was on my own terms then. So yeah. that was nice. Yeah, that's good. So we talked a bit about the the kind of the starter home model that you had. It got you effectively to retire pretty much. But, uh, you know, just... Have you done other things in property? You kind of alluded to it, certainly in your own right. And if so, what sort of things have you done? Kind of knowing already some of the answer. I mean, yes, yeah, so the fact that you know the answer, I feel like you should just answer for me. But that would probably be a one-sided interview then, wouldn't it? Um, the, what have I done? I've done pretty much everything. I've tried most things just to see if it works or how much of a lie it is. So development was a big one that I've done. Um, I think including my time with other agencies and stuff like that. I've done about £2.3 billion worth of property development now, so a decent chunk of it. I've done quite a lot of planning gain and more paper-based value adds, which I quite like because it's easy and straightforward. Uh, I've done some HMOs, sort of in London and Cambridge way. I've done JV development with people. I've done JV long-term ownership. Wouldn't do that again. Pain in the ass. Um, so I'm trying to get out of all those ones that I've still tied up in there. Um, but yeah, pretty much every one of them missed, I'm supposed to. I've invested in different countries. Um, there we go. Uh, what else have I done that I'm supposed to be mentioning? Am I supposed to know your story better than you know your story? I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think, no, I think you've covered most of it. I think, um, yeah, the, the long-term JV thing I wanted to come back to, but the US thing... the. I think that was, it's probably worth just a quick uh, segue into that because my understanding of what you, your motives behind the US thing were kind of, is it fair to say it was like the, the UK starter home on steroids? I think that was the phrase we came up with when we were in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, yes, it's, it's exactly the same thing. So very simple, single let property, buy it, get finance on it, rent it out, use the profit from the property to pay down the debt, get it up as unencumbered as quickly as possible, which is exactly what I do in the UK. And it probably, if you go like full tilt at it, you can maybe do 12 to 15 years for that time frame. With the American property, because the yields that they give you, you can sort of achieve that in four to six years, something like that, depending on obviously interest rates, how much loans value you get, all that good stuff. 
But yeah, for me, the strategy in America is identical to what I've already done over here. It's just a lot quicker. So it is four years, five years, that kind of ballpark. And then you've effectively, your tenants, instead of giving you an income, because they've paid down your debt for you, they've given you effectively a capital appreciation there. And you can basically guarantee a doubling 100% increase in your initial investment within five years. Yes, without any income, but it's still a pretty good, almost foolproof way of doing it. Big, yeah, big caveat and pause there. Uh, But unless the property market collapses, which I think is a little bit more likely in America than it is in the UK, but because the sort of properties I'm buying, they're already quite low end anyway, not that much further for them to drop. If they drop by 20%, it's like, oh, they've dropped 10 grand. It's not a huge sum of money. So that gives you some downside protection, but also the type of tenants I'm letting out to, they're effectively the US version of DSS tenants, so Section 8, I think they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, DSS, I'm showing my age, LHA now, sorry. Um, so there's a lot of downside protection with those types of properties. Your biggest risk is probably the structural side of it, and yeah, that's always a risk, but if you get enough of them, they'll kind of cover each other then. So yeah. I mean, the- it's kind of the one thing we both couldn't get ahead around is just the relatively low land value and relatively high gross yields for you know the equivalent to a single single let in in some parts of the states. Well, yeah, we bought sort of properties for one hundred and seventy, one hundred eighty thousand dollars, and then you'd see a plot of land a couple of doors down on the market for five thousand dollars. You think if this was in the UK? <laughs> The vast majority of the value of a property is in the land. And I guess it kind of makes sense, an island versus a massive country like America. And especially the the areas we were sniffing around, they weren't highly densely populated areas anyway. So yeah, it does, I guess there's a logic there, but it was very unusual for us, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it's a bit of an eye-opener. And the yields as well, you know, how people would pay, what, 15% plus, you know, gross yield in certain uh, sections of the market. So... Yeah, I think my yields in the UK are pretty good at sort of the 8%, although there's a benchmark. Yeah. I think the one we've got in the US are more like 17%. So as you say, it's it's twice as quick as it would be in the UK to do exactly the same strategy. Yeah. It's an absolute minefield from a legislation and finance point of view. So it's not necessarily yeah. <laughs> they make you work for it. Yeah, yeah. You you know, there's a lot of complexity that, you know, simplistically, economically it works, makes sense, but you know, legals. Yeah. And- and stuff like that needs to be considered so and it seems to have a tax for everything you can possibly think of yeah they have three at least three levels don't they so thieves so the um the other thing you mentioned briefly i was just wanting to come back to you talked about long-term jvs and potentially not being such a great idea why, why was that i think that's probably just me being antisocial to be honest um i don't play well with others on a long-term basis um What's the last term in your book? <laughs> I asked some of my girlfriends not that long. Um, I think probably longer than a development cycle. So sort of two years is ideally the maximum I want to be in bed with someone, financially speaking. Um, whereas when you start doing the long-term stuff, I think it's just hard to match up two people's long-term financial goals that don't change that much over a two-year period. So what seems like a good idea at the time, after a few years, it's like, oh, well, I want to go on and do this sort of investment now, or I want to do this with the property. And even if it's just, I want to sell it, I want to keep it. It's it's things like that, that 
I'm not used to having to negotiate and come up with an agreeable solution for two people instead of just me looking at it and thinking, I think this is the best solution, so I'm going to do that. And rightly or wrongly, sometimes you get it wrong, but at least it's all on me then, as opposed to, well, now I've got to consider what somebody else wants and what they think and what they think is the best idea and do that with them. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a personal preference. I think it's a very good way to access finance if you've got no finance, but you've got lots of skill and time. So it's a great way to do that and, you know, JV on that basis. I also think it's a good way to enter markets that you couldn't necessarily afford on your own with somebody else. So I do see there's lots of pros to it. It's just for me, I'm not looking to always be pushing the envelope of, well, I want to go for a bigger deal now so I can make even more profit. It's, yeah, I'm happy in my own little bubble, just bumbling around aimlessly and doing all right at it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, you know, you have to, I, I agree with you. I mean, short-term basis, you know, one, two, three years max, probably. Um, you said two. Um, yeah, something in that vicinity. Uh, would, would probably be about right because um, or or have a way this is probably the, the alternative isn't it have a way that you could carve it out uh easily so you know yeah. if you have two properties it's quite easy to do a separation at least uh, one for you one for me type of thing so um have a, have it. a development like that you can say well okay we're going to develop four units after x period of time we'll just split it 50 50 or something like that so i think it works quite well from the development side of it it's yeah i mean i've got a couple of hmos that i've got with other people and it's just i pay no attention to it because i kind of leave it for someone else to do on the basis i've almost written it off now because it's like yeah whatever at some point somebody will tell me something has happened i've probably lost loads of money on it and i don't even know but whatever <laughs> I, I doubt it somehow and i doubt you don't really know what's going on as well i i, I kind of know you so i'm sure closer eye on it than you're suggesting um and talking about having a closer eye on financial matters so um what else have you been doing to keep yourself busy because you know you said you went full-time in property you got bored you went and did something else but what else did you do or are you doing um besides pure property so i went full 360 and started going back towards more of the ifa days um and knowing when i looked at my situation it was like yeah cool i'm able to retire live off my income from property got bored when I do something else um, and I realized that I was massively overweight in one asset class and it was fine at the time because it was sort of what 2012 14 yeah those sort of ballpark areas so property had already had a big crash but it was still kind of fresh in the mind of well it can do this again so although my model isn't that risky it was still, well, I don't really want to be overly weight, overweight in this so much. And so it was all about trying to get back towards a better diversified portfolio with the other asset classes, commodities, gold, all of the different equities and funds and all that good stuff. So I started to go back towards that. Um, obviously, you and I worked together for a wee while, and that was all about how can we share what we've learned along the way. And I think that kind of got me onto, I quite like working with people not many people, to be honest, but with some people, I mean, a lot of, I think your people will know me from previous days and they'll know I'm not very sociable. <laughs> so I like working with a small group of decent people. Um, and our benchmark was always, would you go for a beer with them, whether or not they were a customer? And I think I very much took that one to heart. So working with people in property, I think was one thing. And I guess for me, I was being pulled back towards, well, I don't just want to be in property. I want a more diversified portfolio. So I went back to effectively now helping people out investing 
across the board. So they've got a bit more of a diverse portfolio. They know about all of the different investment options and the different asset classes and all that good stuff. And, you know, it's up to them to make the decision of what they want to do. I'm not a financial advisor. I guess I don't know what the actual term is. I think someone said financial personal trainer. And I guess that kind of fits because let's face it, a personal trainer, you could watch all of the stuff they teach you on YouTube and not pay anybody any money. But there's so much stuff on YouTube or the internet or whatever that you don't really know what the best thing is for you. And so you need someone to educate you and say, well, okay, here are all your options and here's the pros and cons of different asset types or different workouts, whatever it might be. These are the ones that are probably best for you. And they just teach you what you need to know to make your own informed decisions. That's kind of where I'm at at the moment, doing more of a financial education piece, which so far is proving entertaining. Yeah, well, entertaining is a word, actually, because... um... Uh, if anyone's, uh, you know, not read it, then your book, for example, The Money Shot, um, the, I particularly recommend the uh, Audible version. Uh, <laughs> it is a different version. <laughs> I mean, it's basically the same version, but after the first chapter, I got a bit bored of reading my own stuff. So I go rogue a little bit and go off tack, but it's generally the same information. But I think I give people like an insight into it, like, oh yeah, this example actually the guy's name isn't this, his name's actually this. And I used to do Thai boxing with him and you know, give a little bit more insight into the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's and, and on a serious note, there's some really good stuff in it. And um, But I, I don't think I've ever read a personal finance book where I literally laughed out loud. And I, I did. <laughs> I always wanted, you know, it was like, that is hilarious. You know, you've just added such a sense of humour to uh, to writing about what can be a really dry topic. So. Oh, Dead boring, what I talk about. And I mean, it's one of those things where every so often I'm like, oh, yeah, I should try and help people learn this aspect of finance. And the number of times I've recorded something, whether it's like a video course or some training, and you listen back to it and you think, God, I want to just top myself listening to this. It's so dull. And so even I have to go back and edit myself and be like, come on, there must be a way to make this a little bit more interesting. But the topic is fundamentally really boring, a bit like the way I invest in property. It's just buy stuff that's relatively cheap that people want to live in and it will pay you money for it. And then just do that for like a decade or two. That's basically my entire strategy in a sentence. It doesn't take much more than that. So to try and jazz it up a little bit, it takes some work sometimes. Well, do you know, there's a lot to be said. I mean, I think uh, in personal finance, generally speaking, property specifically, you know, boring is good. It's just how do you stay with it? You know, how do you stick with it? And that's where people sometimes come unstuck because... You know, the, the strategy of earning the money, you know, should be kind of sensible and, and pretty boring. And then once you've got it, well, you can do all sorts of interesting things with your life then, can't you? Yeah. And that's it. I think having the different pots almost are, well, this is my boring fund and this is going to be, you know, even if it's just like, this is my retirement fund, this is my retire early. So I don't want it to be 50, 60. I want it to be 30, 40, depending on how old you are. And then this is my complete punt money then, yeah, I think having those, but understanding why you've got them at different percentages and where you're investing them and what your genuine risk profile is and the whole, oh, you've got a long time to invest, so you should just invest in the stock market. It's like, yeah, but that's just flawed fundamentally of how volatility works, again, purely from a mathematical perspective and just being able to explain things like that, which I don't think many finance advisors explain. hope you haven't got many finance advisor listeners. But most of them haven't done anything themselves, so they haven't got any money, and they're relatively young. They've I've literally done the exams that they need to do 
Most of it's about how to sell someone a pension. Um, if they're really lucky, they spend ages on actuarial tables and could tell you when you'll be dead. That's always a good laugh. Um, but they will get sort of fed from head office or whatever subscription service they've got that say, these are the funds that we're pushing people towards for X, Y, and Z reason. So when you go to a, a proper advisor that says, well, okay, I think you should put your money here and here, it's like, okay, why? And they're like, well, because, and they can look, like, oh, cool, well, why is that important? Or why is that going to happen? That means that's going to be a good thing. But like, because it said so. <laughs> They've got no experience and they can't then talk to you generally. They can talk about equities, maybe bonds. They won't know anything about commodities. They certainly won't talk to you about crypto. They'll probably be reluctant to talk to you about property because they don't get any commission for selling you any of those things. So, and even within the property sector, people tell you, oh, property is the greatest thing in the world. They've still got a horse in the race. And so they're like, yeah, properties perform better than the equity market for the past, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right. And that's, I guess, that's my paranoia kicking in. But I always think if anyone tells me anything, it's like, well, what's in it for you for me to believe you? And if I can figure that out, I've got no issue with people selling me stuff to make a profit. That's how the whole world works. But I just want to know where their interests are. And I think that's, from my point of view, I charge people for knowledge. They can do what the hell they like with it. I'm not selling anybody a product. So it's like, yeah, pay me, listen to me, ignore me, go nuts, I don't care. You've paid me now, so whatever. You've got, uh, talking about, you know, paying for your knowledge. I mean, you've got you've got the book, so people can buy that. I think you have a podcast or podcast series of the, of the same name, pod, uh, The Money Show. The Money Show, yeah. I can't, I can't decide if I want to carry on doing that. What, you this just might not be the best opportunity to have this personal breakdown, but um, I've done like two seasons of it now, and I've not been tracking if anybody listens. But you know when you just think, I can't be bothered. I'm sure nobody listens or cares, so I just won't bother. Well, there is... I think people do listen and care, but I think uh, equally. That's why we're doing this. There's a lot about you because I think you are, um, let's talk about your sort of interest in in variety. Because I think, you know, you like to do different things, don't you? So you you might have got bored of it and you think I want to do something else. But actually, um, you know, I've spoken to you a bit over the last couple of years as we we kind of, you know, we're still friends, but we're doing different things. And you've been all over the world. I mean, you've been in different places. So just talk a, bit, a little bit about where you've been and what you've been doing just last couple of years, for example. Yeah. Apart from now, yeah. nobody can go anywhere and do anything, but that's um, besides the point. Yeah, the past three months, I've been in my office, the lounge, and the bedroom. <laughs> It'll be a short series this past three months. But, but yeah, no, I think I am. I also think I'm quite, what's the word? I was going to say shallow, but I don't think that's the right word. But I'm like a small child. I need someone to pat me on the head and say, well done every so often, otherwise I'll stop doing it. So if I don't feel appreciated by it, I'm like, yeah, well, nobody cares. Nobody tell me I was a good boy today, so I'm not doing this anymore. But you've been, I know you've been to Bali and I think you've been to the States and you've been to different places and you can, that's my point. And you can... You can- yeah. No, I think the property and the investing and the education stuff that I do now gives me the opportunity to, as long as I've got one of my many, many backpacks and a laptop, I can work anywhere in the world and it doesn't impact at all on my income. So we were talking sort of before the call, the lockdown in the UK literally didn't really notice the difference for the first few months because the people I work with, they're, they're still okay. If they've been working with me for a while, they could see the potential opportunities of what's happening and they were looking at, well, how can I position myself to make the most of this particular situation? And yeah, fortunately, the way 
I sort of said, well, this is how it could play out. It has done. And so they've been able to make pretty good returns for the past few months that ordinarily they'd be expecting, well, yeah, this might take me three years and they've done it in a few months. So yeah, I, and I like that. I like the interaction more with people now. I think I've, over the past few years, have figured out what is a good way for me to work and having a bit more, I'm never going to be mass appeal. I know that because I call people rude names too much. But, um, and you notice how well behaved I'm being on this episode very, so far. Very. So, I'm being good. Um, but no, I, I'd rather work with a small group of people that I get on with really well and can genuinely see the impact of my sharing of knowledge and having the impact on them and their financial situation. So that's the bit I quite like. So yeah, the stuff I'm doing now, there's, there are elements of it that are digital courses and things like that, where it's just, well, here's the bare minimum information you need, get that stuff in order, and then we can come and talk about the interesting, cool stuff afterwards. And that's, I suppose, that's where I put most of my energy and effort now. Yeah, and, and I've started doing that. I've started sharing what you do with wider community. I'm very heavily weighted in, in property. I'm trying not to be so much so, but um, yeah. you're helping me to broaden my outlook, if you like, into different asset classes, as you talked about. So um, some good stuff there, if people want to find out more. I think you'll probably tell us towards the end, but um, that's that, and that's good. But um, I guess just maybe thinking about um, to starting to, to wrap up, Is there are there lessons that you, uh, or what advice might you give, perhaps your younger self or someone listening to this who might be a mini Damien, forbid the thought, you know? Um, yeah, maybe let's go there. But, you know, say you're 18 to 25 or 18 to 30, um, and you think, well, maybe I'd like to go full time in property. Well, what sort of advice would you give from your perspective? I think, and it, it's probably, it, I guess it's almost specific to me and my personality type. So if I was telling younger me what to do, it would be kind of the route I took, but just a bit quicker and a bit more structured. So I think working, you don't need to become a chartered surveyor to be able to be successful in property. But I do think working in like an estate agency or a letting agency gives you a much better in-depth knowledge of an area, more importantly, because you will know literally that street's good, that street's bad, everyone wants to live there, nobody wants to live there. And if you're focusing on a small patch, and I think that's probably an important thing, having one strategy, one property type, whatever it might be, focus on that, get good at it, learn it, the ins and outs of it, because that then gives you the opportunity to either sell your skills onto somebody else and you know find a financial backer but you've genuinely got the skill to bring to the table to warrant taking some equity in the deal, doing some sort of JV with them. I think that would probably be a good starting point. There's too many people that just want to JV with property people. And it's like, oh, ask all of your family members for money. I'm like, okay, fine. But do you know anything about property? You've got zero track record. You've got no experience, no professional qualifications. You're just asking people for money to go and do your hobby. So I think fine as a strategy use other people's money to grow but make sure you're actually bringing something to the table whatever that might be um i think developments developments are getting harder i'd say probably for the last few years they the money available on developments is a lot less because there's so many people that think they can do it and i think that's a problem that even i was facing 10 years ago everybody had seen the sarah beanie programs and the location 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 all that stuff so everyone fancied themselves as a developer and in property, nobody ever talks about the failures. People only ever talk about the successes. And so all of the, the gurus out there and the property trainers will say, oh, yeah, we did this great deal and we made blah, blah, blah. 
but they won't mention that A, that was the only deal they've ever done, and B, the other three deals that they've done, yeah, none of them worked out and we made a loss or it didn't pan out the way they wanted to, whatever. Nobody sits in the pub saying, yeah, I got into property and lost everything. It's only the people that made a load of money that want to talk about it. So I think taking everything with a pinch of salt, genuinely learning some sort of skill that is marketable to someone else, and then yet just don't be overly distracted by everything that's shiny that comes along. And whether it is working, properly working, giving your time for money in property, and accepting it's going to be a long slog before you get the finances able to invest in property yourself, that's one thing. Um, Or developing the skills so that you can take money off someone else and genuinely and sensibly invest that money on their behalf as well. I think that's probably the route I'd go. And if you're saving up, if you want exposure to residential property before you've got enough to buy a property, looking into things like the REITs, the house builders, some way to get almost fractional ownership, maybe it's the uh, crowdfunding stuff, the peer-to-peer stuff, but some way, if that's the area you want to go into, figure out how you can get into it without, well, I've got 60 grand saved up in my bank account doing nothing because I'm waiting to use it as a deposit. You can still use that money in some other way, shape or form if it's for investment. If it's something you need for a your own house or a, a wedding or something, yeah, don't mess around with it. But if it's for investment purposes, then start investing it, start learning. Would be my top tip. That sounds good to me. Um, and, you know, I think you you can probably talk about, you know, other ways of investing as well and not being necessarily so weighted in property. Um, so it kind of brings us on to, if people wanted to, to reach out to you or connect with you, where would they go? What should they say when they connect? Uh, probably the easiest place is my website, theepinvestor.com. And you should say hello. It's always a good starting point. Um, what we call manners, Richard. Uh, yeah, I know. say whatever you want. There's there's a bunch of things you can wander around the website. There's some. It's the usual stuff. Have a free lead magnet here that I'll email you about a bunch of stuff. Uh, if people want to skip all that and just work with me, then I think probably the masterclass is the one that is my main focus right now. It's sort of everything I know about everything to do with finance and investing, all in the one place and then pulling it all together with you at the end to make sure you leave with a proper asset allocation, portfolio model, all that good stuff. So that's probably the best starting point for most people. Um, And there's a cheeky little thing inside it that if you do it properly, will cover the cost of the whole thing anyway, which is always nice. That sounds good to me. I know. Brilliant. Well, uh, you've behaved yourself remarkably. Um, You did did promise me you'd get drunk for the show. Um, You're bearing up quite well if you are. So <laughs> half twelve today. It's the sunniest day of the year so far. No idea when this is going to get released, but today you can all look it up on the internet. Today was the sunniest day of the year, so I went for a lunchtime drink on the balcony. Obviously, can't go far. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you've done really well, mate. It's great to see you. Thanks for sharing. Um, next week, by the way, is the answer. Next Wednesday, which won't cool. mean to anyone watching this either. But there we go. So just there's a, a week between recording basically and, and it going live so anyway thanks damien it's been great um there's loads of great insights there i'll summarize it probably talked a little bit um yeah i won't i won't summarize it too much because we've we've spoken a bit i hope people um maybe get your book uh, maybe reach out to you for your website um it's it's remarkable it's actually it's great to catch up with you and just listen listen back because there's so many values that you have that i also share it's just I don't call people rude names. I think besides that, we're you know we're almost almost brothers. You like the polite version of me. I'm the better yeah. looking one. Th- oh, oh, that's <laughs> nice of you to say. Um, 
test these uh, these glasses out, mate. Yeah, so yeah, I already steamed up. I didn't work anymore. And this is drink talking as well. I get you. So that's cool. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, mate. It's great to see you. We'll uh, we'll catch up again soon. Cheers, Richard. Ta-da. Well, there you go. Um, Damien's got a unique story, as most of our guests have got a unique story, and yet there's so many common elements, isn't there? I think in Damien's case, um, I think he's probably a self-confessed money geek. Um, he grew up, you know, having conversations around the dinner dinner table in the family home with money and business effectively being you know, regular topics of conversation. And you couldn't say that about every single home. I think he, I think he bought the FT and uh, he studied shares and he, he, he started investing or trading, actually, um, in the earlier years. And um, I think even before he'd finished university, he was investing. So he was able to retire at the age of 32, which... Um, not that many people can say. Um, I think he said it took him 11 years before he went full-time in property. I dare say he could have pushed himself to go a little bit faster if he really wanted to. But one of the reasons is that he um, he was leveraging, if you like, the ability to um, save from his salary. So he would often uh, set aside money from his earnings to be able to top up the money that he's leaving into property transactions, um, You know, the, the residual deposit through his buy-refurbish-refinance strategy that he was uh, sticking to um, for those years. But I think the other thing, just to cast your mind back, is what he said about you know the path that he took. He took a very deliberate path to work in property and get qualified formally in the area he was really interested in. I call him a money geek, but he's actually really a strong academic as well. He's, he's multidisciplined, is Damien. Um, you know, he went to do the chartered surveyor um, he, he's qualified as a, as a mortgage broker, mortgage advisor. And of course, you know, he's got his general academic background as well. So went to work for the MOD. Uh, he was working for a letting agency at some point as well. So he really immersed himself into br- bricks and mortar, I guess, you know, from different elements of so property management, uh, portfolio management, for example. Um, but equally, he edu- educated himself on different asset classes. So property is not all he does. Indeed, I know that. Um, he's got uh, quite a lot of different interests in different asset classes, and he studies uh, he studies these, and uh, he actually shares his knowledge as well. You can actually look him up at theepinvestor.com. Um, he's got some interesting programs there, even if not always the most politically correct <laughs> in the way he speaks. But you know, got to love him. you got to love him. So I think um, the other thing to take away from this conversation that I had was that his original... Um, plan which was to accelerate to pay down debt effectively so he would always take either a repayment mortgage or be able to throw money at uh, his his uh, mortgages um, over time so that he could actually you know pay a 25 year mortgage off in probably half the time that was his target if he could clear it in about 12 and a half years and he's done something similar in the us we touched that on that uh, similarly in the in the conversation that he can probably get um you know property paid off in you know, three to five years actually in the US because of different um, economic elements and factors that prevail in some parts of the US too. So he doesn't like to hang about basically, but he was, um, you know, 11 years in the making going full time and he's going from strength to strength. So hopefully got a lot from that. As I say, look him up on his website and uh, feel free to connect with Damien if you haven't done so already. Um, I guess the um, the show notes are going to be over the website, uh, thepropertyvoice.net where you get a transcription of the show as well, if you'd like to uh, read as well as listen. Um, The video is going to be over at the YouTube channel, the Property Voice YouTube channel. So make sure you check us out in whatever media format is best for you. 
But uh, meanwhile, I guess if there's anything you'd like to talk about from today's show, you know you can always reach me personally, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. I'd be delighted to hear from you. But I guess all that's left to say right now is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Popsy Voice podcast, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.